This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Everybody, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to have you with us. Quick apology um, if my voice sounds a little bit strange, it's because it is. It's been one of those weeks, a little under the weather, but I'm so glad that I still get to do this and we are going to push through. So let's do it. All right, it is May 16th, 2022. Like I said, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you with us. Uh, had a great weekend. Um, yesterday spent some time with my wife at the pool as always a good thing to do, you know, with how fast life is traveling with how fast the world is just throwing things at you from every different direction. You got to take those times to just literally unplug and relax, rest and renew for the next week. Right. So I was able to do that, had a lot of fun. Um, and here we are Monday morning. So jumping into our minute of transparency, I'm calling this one Adventure versus Trial. So this week, I listened to one of the more recent episodes on the Robcast. Uh, It was called Like a Fish Standing on the Beach. And in the episode, Rob explained basically that he likes asking people the following question. He says, in the home you grew up in, which of the following messages did you receive? Message number one, life is an adventure that you get to go on. Or message number two, life is a trial to be endured. So I'll just ask you the same question right here now. What message did you receive growing up? So go ahead and think about that. And while you're thinking about it from your perspective, I'll just say that this question hit me like a ton of bricks. Probably because I knew that one answer is better than the other, and probably because I knew that I struggled to answer in that direction. Now, in all fairness to my parents, I don't know that they specifically fed these messages to me, or if I'm the one that chose them and ran with them based on my personality. But whatever the case, I tend to view the world as a trial, or at least I feel like that's the way I lean. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not a happy person, right? That doesn't mean that I don't experience joy, that I don't look forward to things that are coming in the future that are adventurous, stuff like that. But it does mean that for the most part, probably more than 50% of the time, I'm viewing the world as a trial. Now, this could be for a variety of reasons, but I'll just throw out two obvious ones, right? So first, because I grew up in a traditional Christian home. It is what it is. I've talked to so many people raised like me who have a similar outlook on life. Years spent in fear that you are doing things wrong, that you are sinning, that you wouldn't make it to heaven, that you couldn't control your impulses as much as you wanted to, and you weren't making progress toward perfection. Okay, I went a little too far on that one, but you get the idea. Perfection is not the goal, but living in that upbringing, living in that environment, it almost breeds a desire to be perfect, right? So for me, it was all about this good behavior thing, right? And that was my main focus. 
It's how I viewed the world almost as an obstacle course, always out to get you, basically a trial that you have to endure. That was number one. Number two, because I'm an Enneagram one. So I feel like my wife hates it when I blame things on my Enneagram number. But at the end of the day, isn't the Enneagram just trying to describe very observable behaviors and tendencies that people have? So if I'm displaying these tendencies, then it's not really the number one that I'm blaming. It's the number that's blaming me for me for being me, right? Kind of deep, kind of, uh, you know, chicken versus egg kind of a thing there. But regardless, the Enneagram one struggles with perfectionistic tendencies. So we, we view the world as something that has to be fixed. We view ourselves as being flawed and we're always striving to be good or to be better. And our biggest fear is that we may be viewed by somebody or viewed by the world as corrupt, evil, or in some way defective. So with these two things at the heart of my thoughts and my behavior, you can see where my life might have started to look like a trial rather than an adventure. That said, I hate it, right? I hate the fact that I see the world in this way at all, even if it's just 20% of the time, because I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the other guy. I want to be the fun guy, right? The adventurous guy, the one that's getting the most out of life. It just sounds more fun. And it makes sense that living that way keeps you from having regrets when you get older in life. So that's really where I'm at, right? I know my tendencies, but I'm fighting back. I'm fighting against them. I'm working hard to see the adventure that lies before me in the days ahead and into the future. So I'm a work in progress but at least I'm making progress. Today's topic, transcending positivity. Section number one, pick a mood, any mood. Section number two, going to the extreme. And then we'll finish everything up with finding balance. Number one, pick a mood, any mood. So I alluded to this a bit, I think, in the opener, kind of the suggestion that we are typically one of two people, right? We're either people who are adventuring through life or we're people who are enduring life. But as we've discussed before, there are much bigger, much more diverse buckets that we can clump ourselves into if we want to. Um, You might remember these, optimist, pessimist, realist, and idealist. We've been through that two or three times on the podcast. Um, So today I want to kind of talk through those a very high level, and we're going to add a new one. We're going to add opportunists to the list. So what's an optimist, right? Somebody who has a positive outlook on life most of the time. Pessimist, opposite, right? Someone who has a negative outlook on life most of the time. A realist. A realist is a person who views things in a certain way because history suggests it. So much more neutral, able to kind of stay in the middle, Um, It isn't necessarily what happens that's important. It's how we respond to it that's important. Next are the idealists. So these are people who've kind of lost sight of reality, right? Or they just don't require it. Um, These people aspire to an ideal. Their heads are in the cloud thinking about the way things should be, not the way they are. Somewhat perfectionistic as well, right? In, In wanting the world to be a certain way. And then the new one, opportunists. So opportunists simply are realists, right? They understand that there's good things that are going to happen and bad things. But an opportunist views whatever happens as a jumping off point, right? 
every event that happens to you, how can I take it, flip it, and then make it work for me? Now, we don't need to dive into those any further. I mean, if you're really interested in those kinds of topics, we talked about them in episode 37, which I believe was Transcending Your Worldview. And then again in episode 69, Transcending Negativity. So, you know, if you're interested, head back to one of those and you can check those out. But for today, it's just good to remind ourselves that these are buckets that we can find ourselves in as well. But I guess my question out of all of this is, who cares? Does it really matter? Does it matter what my worldview is, what my mood is most of the time, whether I'm more positive or more negative or more introverted or more extroverted, or what my stupid Enneagram number is for that matter, right? I mean, the only reason I ask this question is because every time I've taken a personality inventory, like the Enneagram or Insights Discovery or Strengths Finder, the first thing that they tell you is that all of the options are the same. All are of equal value. No matter what type you get, it's good. It's all good. It's not like one type is good and another is lacking in some way. They're all good. In fact, most, if not all of them, um, only really start talking about weaknesses once you get into a certain type. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's just take the Enneagram, for example. So you will never hear somebody say, oh, being a one is such a strength. And being a seven is such a weakness because one and seven are types and one is no better than seven. Seven is no better than one. But what you will hear them say is the Enneagram one can either be healthy or unhealthy. And if they start becoming unhealthy, they start showing weaknesses. So it's not that a person is strong and another person is weak. It's that Every one of us has the same opportunity, no matter what type we are, no matter what mood we're in, what mood we tend toward, right? It doesn't matter. We all have the ability to be healthy or unhealthy, to show our strengths and use our strengths or lean toward our weaknesses. So back to my question, if that's true, and it really doesn't matter what type of a person we are and we're supposed to value everyone equally, then do any of these personality traits really even matter? Well, let me start by throwing out a very ambiguous yes and no. Here's why. On the one hand, I don't believe it matters, specifically to our salvation. So in other words, I believe that there will be optimists and pessimists in heaven. You've heard of doubting Thomas in the Bible, right? If you doubt so often that you get a nickname, you must be viewing the world from a pretty pessimistic viewpoint. And I'm pretty sure doubting Thomas is going to be in heaven. On the other hand, I do believe that it matters to our overall life journey. In other words, if we have the choice, why not try to view things more optimistically? Is it really going to kill us to be more positive? I doubt it. And that attempt to be more positive will have an impact on how we and those around us experience life. I'm guessing when we get to the end of our lives and look back, we won't regret all of the times that we try to see the best in a situation. And that's really my hope for us this week, is not to become a completely different person, not to be disloyal to who we are, but to start viewing our life as having options and picking the better option 
more often, to transcend our mood, if you will. Number two, going to the extreme. So since we're having this conversation about mood and how we experience life, I thought it might be interesting to talk about the extremes. What does it look like to be extremely positive or extremely negative, right? And in doing so, I want to talk about the worldview that kind of is associated with each of these extremes. So we'll just refer to them as toxic positivity and nihilism. So let's start with toxic positivity. So defined by the psychology group, psychologygroup.com, it says we define toxic positivity as the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, minimization, and invalidation of the authentic human emotional experience. Interesting, right? This whole idea that you can actually be too happy or too positive and that it could cause problems. Uh, The article goes on to give us some signs of toxic positivity. First, hiding or masking your true feelings. Second, trying to just get on with it by stuffing or dismissing an emotion. Number three, feeling guilty for a feeling that you have or that you're feeling. Number four, minimizing other people's experiences with feel-good quotes or statements. Number five, trying to give somebody perspective, as in, it could be worse, instead of simply validating the emotional experience that they're having. Six, shaming or uh, chastising others for expressing frustration or for anything other than being positive. And finally, brushing off things that are bothering you with, eh, it is what it is. Now, they go on to list some problems. So if you get into this habit of being toxically positive, um, it can actually cause problems in our life. Um, They just listed four here. One is shame. Next is suppressed emotions, isolation, and relational problems. And just to make it very practical, um, I found another article by choosingtherapy.com, and they list some common phrases that you might hear when a person has toxic positivity going on. So here's some phrases that if you hear these, this should be kind of a, a bell that goes off in your head. Failure is not an option. Everything happens for a reason. It could be worse. Don't be so negative. Other people have it so much worse than you. Happy thoughts. Stay positive. You'll get over it. Just look on the bright side. Now, it's not that phrases like these are all bad if you use them at the right time and with the right application, but people who suffer from toxic positivity are all in all the time, right? These are the phrases and the mantras that come out of their mouth all of the time every day. And I'm not trying to be mean to a specific group of people because I feel like we all fall into this trap ourselves and often, I mean... (laughs) Tammy and I have had more adult conversations with our kids lately, not because they're adult conversations, but because our kids are now adult. And an interesting thing came out in some of these conversations, right? Um, Our kids have said that we didn't do a great job identifying and normalizing feelings. And, you know, we pushed back a little bit because we're like, what, 
what does that even mean? Like, what, what do you mean? What did we do wrong? And the more that we listened and the more that they explained, we started to see how that could have happened. You know, partly because we may have tried to shelter them from having negative emotions. Uh, maybe we didn't model emotional awareness for them. Maybe Tammy and I kind of hid our anger and frustration until we were behind closed doors and then, you know, work through it ourselves without them actually being able to see that there was a process. And then I think there was just some toxic positivity overall, right? Putting on a smile and just suggesting that they do the same instead of asking them how they were truly feeling, then validating those feelings, normalizing those feelings, and allowing them time to work through them. The choosingtherapy.com article kind of summarizes it with this. It says, Toxic positivity pushes people to only focus on positive emotions, even in the face of great hardship. This can intensify underlying negative feelings, making it harder to cope. Positivity thinking is healthy, but nonstop positivity is unattainable. If you're struggling with toxic positivity, remember that we all have ups and downs, so honor your emotions and process them in order to achieve better well-being. Okay. On the other side of the spectrum, you have what's called nihilism, or people who are referred to as nihilists. So let's get a working definition from Wikipedia. It says, nihilism is a word from Latin, which includes nihil, which means nothing. So it's a philosophy or family of views within philosophy that rejects generally accepted or fundamental aspects of human existence. Things like objective truth, knowledge, morality, values, meaning, right? Uh, different nihilist positions hold variously that human values are baseless, that life is meaningless, that knowledge is impossible, or that some set of entities do not exist or are meaningless or pointless. Now, I picked this word largely because of the pessimistic nature of the belief system right? The whole idea that there's nothing of value in life, that everything is meaningless or pointless in some way. Now, it may not be the best word to use for this end of the spectrum, but let's start with it and see where it takes us. Another word that immediately had come to mind was fatalism, right? This belief that as humans, we have no control over our existence or even our current behavior for that matter. Um, and I was even prepared to go as far as, um, you know, talking about the goth subculture as part of this far end of the spectrum um, in the way that they perceive the world. Now, I don't know a lot about this subculture, right? Just the stereotypes that I think many of us have um, based on what we see on TV or in movies or what we remember from high school. Um, but in, in trying to figure out a word for this part of the spectrum, I did a little bit of research on goth subculture in order to just speak a little bit more intelligently about it. So the subculture was largely influenced and started by the music scene back in the 60s, 70s. <clears throat> Basically, it became known as the gothic music culture. Um, music groups like The Doors, The Velvet Underground, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, The Smiths, um, even with offshoots as, as kind of extreme as Marilyn Manson, among others. Um, you know, all kind of work together in in pushing this subculture forward into the limelight. Um, but the subculture didn't necessarily stop there because it also had roots in art, history, cultural periods, 
um, you know, extreme Gothic and horror literature kind of influenced them as well. And over time, the subculture began generating its own content, right? It began creating its own literature, its own music, its own movies, art, clothing lines, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my biggest finding in all this research was that the Gothic subculture is not necessarily as pessimistic as I imagined, right? I mean, we just see kids in dark clothes and like, you know, we we see that they have kind of an air of anger or depression or something like that about them. And we just assume that they're super negative. Um, <laughs> but from the research I did, that isn't really the case. Now, so the whole the whole concept, right? The stereotype of gothic kids being depressed, suicidal, or engaging in safe harm, that isn't actually part of that subculture, like in the in the original reasons and beliefs for that culture. Now, Wikipedia lists a few research articles that suggest that, you know, kids who are depressed, suicidal, or self-harming are drawn for some reason to that subculture. So there is a chance that the numbers are higher in that subculture for things like depression and suicidality. Um, But just because the numbers are higher doesn't mean that that subculture believes in it in any way or that it views it as a rallying cry, if you will. So anyways, little rabbit trail there on the Gothic uh, subculture. But, But let's get back to the nihilistic person, right? I still think that this exemplifies the other extreme. Right? It shows the polar opposite between someone with toxic positivity and somebody who has a belief that there is no meaning or there's no value in anything, that nothing is good. Now, I probably don't need to say a lot more about this or the impact that you know it has on us, right? When we start to uh, when we start to feel that way, it's pretty obvious, right? There are obvious social and relational implications. Um, dating a nihilist would be pretty difficult, right? Concepts like commitment, marriage, honor, you know, some of those things may mean nothing to them. And so that would make the relationship very difficult. And then there are the behavioral consequences and considerations. In other words, if I don't believe in morals or values, and I don't believe that anything I do can be classified as good or bad, then what does that say about my thinking and my behaving, right? I would probably act in a very selfish and self-satisfying way. No need to think about anybody else. No behavior is really off limits. Just go through life doing whatever feels good in the moment. Number three, finding balance. So that was fun. I mean, I took a hot minute there to discuss the extremes of toxic positivity and toxic negativity or nihilism. Um, More for fun than anything else, because I believe that's a pretty small percentage of the people in life. Um, but I really wanted to push the extremes and talk about them in order to see the dangers that happen if we become that polarized, right? That fanatical one way or the other. Instead, the suggestion is that we find a healthy balance, right? That we transcend extremes, if you will. And in order to do that, I'm just going to throw out a three-step process that we can use in life to keep us in the middle, to keep us dealing with the good and the bad functionally. So step number one, we need to be realists. We need to acknowledge that there are good things coming, that there are bad things coming, and just be okay with that truth. Second, when good things happen, celebrate them, fully experience them, and document them even so that you can look back on them and smile 
And when we do this, it actually increases our level of optimism, right? We actually become a little bit more positive because we fully experienced that good thing, documented it, remember it, and it helps us to have a more optimistic outlook on the future. Next, when bad things happen, we need to emote, right? We need to become feelers, even if we're bad at it. We need to fully experience the negative emotions, put words to them, and deal with them before we move on. Okay, last step, step number three, move on. Now, this is going to sound weird, but we need to move on from both situations. We need to move on from the good thing that happened, and we need to move on from the bad things that happen, right? We can't get too focused and too caught up in either one. If we get too caught up in the good and start just focusing on the good, over time, we could lean ourselves toward toxic positivity. And the same is true for the bad things, right? If you, if you can't work through the bad thing, put it in perspective and then move on, you'll get too focused on that bad thing. And then you can see yourself almost increasing in negativity or pessimism and, and you start leaning more toward the nihilistic viewpoint. So that's it. Step one, be a realist. Step two, fully celebrate good things, fully work through bad things. And step three, move on and choose not to play the victim role, choose not to get too caught up on the optimistic side and move on. Now, this process happens in many different ways. So think about it as a process that can happen very fast or over a long period of time. So Let's start with a long, drawn-out process that spans a number of years. I mean, think about going through a divorce or the death of a loved one or the loss of a job in terms of negative life events, right? This three-step process could take years to work through or months, right? Or maybe it's a very, very, very short process. So literally walking through each of these three steps in one afternoon, Maybe you you lost a game at school, like a, a sporting event, or maybe you got into a fender bender, or you had an argument with a friend. You could literally work yourself through these step, these three steps in an afternoon and be ready to move on the next day. And then there's everything in between, right? Maybe this process takes someone a month for one thing or six months for another thing. Um, the process is the same, but the time will vary. The important thing is that we're going through the process each and every time. Now, when really bad things happen, step two is where you get stuck, right? That's the step that can be really difficult. It may require that we walk through another set of steps called the stages of grief. Now, we're not going to walk through these today, but uh, here's just a helpful reminder as to what they are. So I uh, I did some research, found grief.com, and you know, this this five-step stages of grief process was made popular by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And it's kind of been looked at as the end-all, be-all um, for working through grief. And so the stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So again, in my three-step process, if something really, really, really big happens, step two is where you will get stuck. Step two is where you will need to work through all five of these things in order to make it through. So 
let's the obvious thing is like a death of a loved one, right? And at first you're in denial of it. You don't want it to be true. You, you may wake up in the morning and be like, no, no, I know they're here. That was just a bad dream. Next is anger, right? When you finally get through the denial stage and you're like, no, it is real. I know it's real and I have to deal with it. And I'm so mad. It's so, why did this have to happen to me? Um, that's the anger stage. Bargaining is like, what if I'm a, if I'm a good enough person, is there a way to get them back? Or, you know, how, how can I, what can I do to make it change somehow? And when you realize there's no change, depression can set in, right? And depression can be a long lasting thing that you have to work through. And once you work through that, acceptance is that final step, right? It's that final stage of moving on and feeling all the feels, but but being willing to move on and accept that it happened. Okay. Before we go, I just want to do a quick self-assessment. So when I talk about this kind of stuff, it all, <laughs> it often makes me ask myself these questions. So how are you doing in this area, right? I've talked a lot before about how this podcast is literally me trying to work through things on my own. And then I'm just doing it in front of a microphone, right? I'm working through these things. I've done some research. I do some reading to help myself get more on track in that area. And then it becomes an episode and hopefully it's helpful to you as well. But in this one, it's kind of weird, right? Because I'm asking myself not only personally as a person, like, what is my mood? Am I optimistic? Am I pessimistic? You know, am I ever toxically positive or am I ever nihilistic? But I'm also asking about transcend human. So obviously transcend human is a reflection of me. But if if I were to look back as an average listener, I wonder how transcend human comes across. Like, is this, do you view this episode or this um, this entire podcast as being optimistic? Like, do I have a positive outlook on life in the way that I'm explaining the content? Or do you view it as pessimistic? I mean, that could be the case as well. Maybe you view it like, <clears throat> like, man, he just, he's always bringing up the negative side of life and how to deal with it. And that's really pessimistic. I don't know. Or maybe I'm too focused on being realistic, right? Or maybe you feel like it borders on idealism. Maybe the fact that we talk about all these abstract ideas uh, that sound good in practice, but are really hard to achieve or attain, maybe that's a little too idealistic. I don't know. So I just want to throw that out there. I mean, it's, it's something that I ask myself, but it's something that I would throw out there and ask you as well. Are we so focused on transcending everything that we've lost the practice of silence and solitude or the, the ability to just be content with where we are and who we are right here and right now? So again, these are questions that I ask of myself, but today I'm asking you, play along with me, right? Email me with your feedback. I welcome it regardless of whether it's positive or constructive criticism or whatever it is. At the end of the day, it's the only way that this podcast is going to get any better, right? I want to be a lifelong learner. I want to grow, become the best version of me. And I want this podcast to eventually be the best version of itself. So if you're willing to do that, shoot me an email, info at transcendhuman.com, and just let me know what you're thinking. All right, let's land the plane. Uh, this week, ask yourself these questions. So first, what type of a person do you tend to be? Are you somebody who is adventuring through life, or are you somebody who's just enduring life? Number two, 
Do you ever go to extremes? Do you ever feel like you head toward toxic positivity or do you head the other direction toward nihilism? If so, how's it working for you, for your family? And then finally, are you able to achieve balance? Are you able to live in the middle? Are you able to navigate the three-step process as you work through both good things and bad things that come your way? And that's it. That's it, everyone. Thank you so much for hanging out with us again this week. Um, apologies on the voice crackling every now and then. Um, I think I'm on the on the mend, feeling much better. So that's awesome. Uh, next week, let's talk about next week. It's going to be something. So I've been working on this episode for close to three weeks now, just because it's something that fascinates me. Um, I've already spilled the beans over on TikTok. Um, but the episode is going to be called Transcending Woke, and it's going to be about this whole concept of being woke, the woke generation, the woke people in this country. Um, probably talk a little bit about this movement I've been reading about called The Awakening. Um, <clears throat> and then I'm going to throw some deconstructionism in there because it all just kind of fits together. So it's going to get a bit deep, but I cannot wait to talk through it. And um, the other thing I'm trying to decide is whether or not I can fit all of this into one episode. So it'll either be transcending woke next week, or it'll be transcending woke episode one or version one of a series, right? A series of, of two or three episodes. So we'll figure that out as we go, but I'm looking forward to that and hope you'll join us for it. Um, until then, have a great week, everyone. Stay positive. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.